0: It is encouraging to see everybody here, and we welcome everybody who's joining us uh, at home and uh, pray that our time spent together will certainly prove to be beneficial and encouraging to you and the Lord. Uh, I'm really excited because beginning next week, we're going to start uh, a major series of lessons taken from the books of First and Second Samuel that's about the life and the times of David, the king of Israel and all of the history that surrounds his life and times. And we're calling it uh, Slings and Songs. Slings and Songs. I'm really excited about that. David was both a warrior, uh, and he was also uh, the great uh, singer of Israel. And he waged war not only with his hands, but also with his words. And I think that we're going to find, as we examine the, the story of David's life, uh, that there are a lot of very interesting parallels between the sort of chaotic time in which he lived and the times in which we live. And I believe that we'll find things that are very informative informative for us in terms of what we should do uh, during this time that we're in. So I hope that you'll be looking forward uh, beginning next week to that study. It'll take us a few weeks to actually get to David because we want to lay uh, the background, but uh, be praying about that. We're going to continue in that series for a couple of months, and I believe that it's going to be something that's very helpful to us. I'm really excited this morning, though, because today we are going to wrap up this series that we're in that we're calling Happily Ever After. It's a series about relationships, and it's something that applies pretty much to all of our relationships, but we're specifically focused on marriage and preparing for marriage in the future. Everybody wants to live happily ever after, and particularly when we think about being married, people want to live happily ever after, but many do not. In fact, it might even be said that most do not, and the reason that they don't isn't because they didn't want to, everybody wants to, but because people don't know how, or they believe in myths that have the tendency to undermine their hopes and dreams, And so we've emphasized throughout this series a couple of things. First, we've tried to emphasize the fact that it's more important that we become the right kind of person than that we just find or meet the right kind of person. That it won't do us any good to meet the right person if we're not their right person. And so we have to focus on becoming that kind of person over time. And then we've emphasized how how we go about doing that. You become the right person by following the ultimate right person, by following Jesus Christ. He's the one who is Mr. Right ultimately, and as we connect with him, as we abide in him like a vine, uh, like a branch abiding in a vine, lean upon him, trusting in him, or perhaps to use a powerful image, we follow him. We're walking on a journey along with him. And as we follow him, we become more like him. And in becoming more like him, then we're becoming what the person that we're looking for is looking for. And uh, that will go a lot further than just happening to meet Mr. or Mrs. Wright. So we've really emphasized those kinds of things in this lesson, in this series. And I think that that's been really helpful in some ways that I really didn't even expect at the beginning, but from some conversations and comments that I've received, people have talked about, you know, it's, it's sort of helpful thinking about following Jesus to be transformed into the kind of people that we need to become so that we can love others as He has loved us. And, and the reason that that's helpful is because it's showing me that it's okay to follow Jesus because people tend to resist that. Because they know that following Jesus is going to cost them something. And they're not exactly sure where this following Jesus is going to lead them. But one of the things that we saw really last week, really strongly, is that if we follow Jesus, if we continue in his footsteps, that when we become where, what he's leading us into, and when we get where he's taking us, it's going to look a lot like this. It's going to look like the love of Christ at work, living in us and through us. And when you follow Christ where he's leading you, you're going to be more patient, you're going to be more kind, you're going to be more uh, less jealous, you're not going to be as arrogant or prideful, you're going to learn to honor other people, you'll be less self-centered than you were before. The things that just set you off and touched you off because you were so easily annoyed will be things that you're able to handle like never before. Instead of being a scorekeeper in your relationships, you learn how the, the power of forgiving others as you follow him. You learn how to protect relationships, and you learn how to trust people, and you learn how, you, you, you learn how to be hopeful about the future in regards to that relationship, and perhaps most importantly, you learn how to persevere in those relationships. And so if you wonder where Jesus is leading you, if following him is going to take you somewhere and you're not sure you want to go there, well then just ask yourself the question, if that's the kind of person that you want to become at the end of life's journey. And if it is, that's exactly where Jesus is leading you. And that's exactly the kind of person that everyone here is looking for. And you know that the person that you're looking for, if they're that kind of person, is looking for that kind of person as well. And so as we become that, we're prepared for what's next. And not only do you know that that's what you're looking for, you know that, and this, this, this is really a big thing for me, you know that if, if your mom or your dad had had these characteristics a little bit more strongly than they did, your life might have been a little bit different than it's been. If your mom had been a little bit more kind, or if your dad had been a little less self-centered, your situation and the trials and ups, and ups and downs that you've had to experience might have gone a little bit better. But you have an opportunity. If you are a young person, especially, if you're not yet married and you're looking toward establishing your home and your family, you have an opportunity by following Christ to have these qualities instilled in your life and to begin to establish a legacy so that your children and your children's children for generations to come can experience what it's like to grow up in an environment where these kinds of characteristics are are present and powerful. And so this is very motivating to me. It's very encouraging, and I hope that it is to you. And today I've saved maybe the best or the toughest part for last, because what I get to do for the next half hour or so is try to sell you on an idea about sexuality that isn't very popular in today's culture. In fact, the point of view that I'm going to present about human sexuality is not what you're going to find people using in order to sell beer or to sell clothes or cars or cologne. That's that's not the way that that it works. But I want to suggest to you that what I'm going to put before you this morning, while maybe not as immediately gratifying or is compelling to the flesh or able to tie to product so that you can move it is going to be something that's going to vastly increase the likelihood that you are going to be able to live happily ever after in your marriage to come. Whether you're already married, whether you hope to be married at some point in the future, if you will stay out of bed until You know, you can take a nap, you can can get a good night's sleep, but stay out of other people's beds, stay out of beds that you shouldn't be in until you're married. And once you're married, stay out of everybody's bed except your own. If you will do that, you will dramatically improve the likelihood of your living happily ever after. In fact, I think that most people uh, today uh, we'll recognize this on some level, but at the same time, there's this other thing that the world is, is throwing out there, and uh, uh, it's kind of like another myth, like the right person myth that we talked about in the first lesson. Well, the myth that people buy into today with regard to human sexuality is this myth, is that, you know, sex is just physical. And, and you know, religious people or, or Christians and preachers, they just like to, to get up there and talk about these things as if it's that really this huge, huge thing. But, but young people today just kind of look at it as, you know, it's just a casual encounter. You know, you just swipe left till you find somebody, then you swipe right, you hook up, and it's just, you know, done and over and, and no strings attached. And it's just a physical thing. It's, it's no big deal. it's a Again, it's a, it's a casual encounter. And that's the attitude that I'm pushing back against. And I want to suggest to you that no matter who you are, and even if you've mouthed the expression that it's, just, it's no big deal, it's just physical, that there is some level at which you know in your own heart and deep in your own thinking that that's not true, that that's not quite right. And, and I think we know that for at least these three reasons. Here's three questions that, that I would pose to any person who wants to espouse this point of view. Number one, if if sex is just physical, then why is it that children who are sexually molested often deal with the complications and difficulties and relationship issues that grow out of that for years, if not decades, and sometimes spend a life trying to unwind the things that happened to them when they were a child? And if it's true that sex is just physical, and as painful as it is to talk about this, again, you know that this is true, as terrible as it is if a woman is physically beaten up, that's terrible. But if she's sexually assaulted, that takes it to a whole nother level. In fact, women will commonly report having been physically beaten up, but when it comes to being sexually abused, it's very common that they don't even report that because there's something that just goes so deep Within them, there's a sense of shame that they feel associated with that, that they just can't even talk about it to anyone else. And if it's true that sex is just physical, then why is it that so many men, in fact, the vast majority of men who have profound sexual issues, we'll just say it that way because it covers a broad spectrum of problems, but Profound. I'm not talking just some difficulties and struggles that every every man faces, but men with profound sexual issues almost always have serious relationship issues with their father or a father who was completely not present in their life at all. And it seems as though if the, the, there's something about that relationship that, that was missing or that was warped that led them in their relationship with, with other people to be maybe seeking something that that was broken in, in another relationship. And so it's, I don't even understand all that. I don't know that anybody understands all that, but it just shows us that there's a complexity to sexuality that extends far beyond this, the physical act in itself. And one more question that I would even throw in on top of this is how, how could anything that has a consequence, a possibility of generating a human life ever be just casual. And so it is that I think that everyone knows on some level that that this is an untrue statement, that this is a myth. And in fact, the Bible paints us another picture, and a picture that I think is actually far more beautiful and far more compelling and far more explanatory as to the power of sex than the common modern perception that sex is just physical. And that is that sex is about intimacy. Intimacy. It is about knowing and being known on a level that really can't be rivaled hardly in any other way. And that when God, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, created man and woman in his own image, he said, when I make man, it's going to be a little bit different than the animals. Yes, they procreate, and humans are going to procreate, but because they reflect my image, because there's something special of me that I'm placing in them their sexual activity is not just going to merely be about reproduction. It's going to be about intimacy. And in some mysterious way, it's even going to be a reflection of the kind of intimate relationship that I'm longing to have with them as my creatures. That there's going to be an openness, a fearlessness, a power that is associated with this relationship that's going to be unlike anything else. And so when God made man and woman in the beginning, it says that it was such a powerful thing that it would cause people to leave the comfort and security of the home that they grew up in and leave mother and father behind and cleave to become as one with their husband or with their wife. And that it would be something that God envisioned would be a lifelong bond that would be strengthened through the physical sexual union that would be experienced there because the two would become one flesh and really become one. One in so many ways, sealed and symbolized by this physical act that has far-reaching implications. And so that's not the reductionist view of crass physical reproduction and pleasure that the world wants to present as its idea of sex, but something much richer and much more profound and much more powerful And not only does the Bible teach us that from its very earliest chapters, but as we continue on, we come to places like Mount Sinai, where Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the law from God. And do you remember what the law of God was with regard to sexuality? It's just the same thing that we've been talking about already. It's like, you know, uh, you shall not commit adultery. And elsewhere in the details of that law, you're not to to become sexually involved prior to marriage. And once you're in marriage, you're to only have sexual relations with your spouse. And I'll tell you what's really interesting about that to me is when I think about religion in general, human religions and, and, and the ideas that men come up with, it never looks like that. In fact, sexual purity and religion typically are... Are enemies of one another in in most world religions. Christianity is quite unique in its approach to this. And in fact, it's one of the things that causes me to realize that the Bible truly is from God. It doesn't begin in the human heart because if Moses had gone up on the mountain and told the people, hey, I'm going to go talk to God and get the rules for everybody to live by and I'm going to come back down and give them to you. And then he comes down and says, hey, God God gave me the rules and here are the rules. His rules for sexuality, if he'd just been making this up, would have looked just like the rules that every other cult leader throughout history, including down to the modern times, would have come up with. He, he, had his, he had told the people, "Hey, since God God said, since I'm the leader, since I'm kind of like the king, since I'm sort of the father of the nation, I kind of need to be fathering the nation." You get the idea. That that's what. Moses would have come up with, but because it wasn't Moses' idea, instead, it was God's revelation to him. He came and he reinforced the idea that God had laid down at the beginning in Genesis chapter 2 of exclusivity, of intimacy, of faithfulness and loyalty to one person. Jesus comes along and he emphasizes the same thing, echoing once more God's design from the beginning that would be one man for one woman, for one lifetime. That's the ideal that Jesus sets before us. And when the Apostle Paul shows up on the scene, he comes along and he entered into a culture, into a world that you, you might want to think that you know, we're living in times like nobody's ever seen before. That, that's just not true. When it comes to sexual immorality, sexual deviancy, sexual uh, permissiveness, The Greco-Roman world was every bit our equal and perhaps well beyond in many areas where we are as a culture today. In fact, if you wanted to go worship one of the Roman deities or the Greek gods, you would go up to the temple, and one of the most common ways that you would worship that god would be to pay money and have sex with a temple prostitute. That was just, that was religion, and that's why I said earlier, religion and sexual purity typically do not go hand in hand. And so Paul was in that kind of world, and in that world, about half of the population were slaves, and a master could have sex with any of his slaves anytime he wanted. That was the law, and nobody questioned it. It didn't matter if they were male or female. They were your property, and you did with them as you will. And even outside that, there were all kinds of sexual promiscuity uh, matters that that took place. And Paul lived in that world. He was not naive to it. And he entered into that world and he, and he said something radically different. And you know what encourages me a little bit is that even though I'm, I'm in a position this morning trying to sell you on an idea that's not popular in our culture, Paul did the same thing. But the reality is that the the vision that he gave for sexuality was so beautiful and so much better and so much more compelling than what the Greek and Roman world was experiencing and the heartache and the, and the trauma and the difficulty that they were enduring for, for doing it their way that eventually, and it took time, eventually the, 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 the view that Paul taught and that Christ taught and that Moses taught ultimately won out and surpassed the view of the Greeks and the Romans. And that gives me hope that as you and I begin to continue to teach this and live it out, that's the biggest thing, that we need to live out in our homes and in our families the beauty of God's ideal for human sexuality so that people see the difference between the way we live our lives as Christians and what's going on in the world around us that eventually they say, you know, we need to abandon this and we need to embrace that. And so as Paul entered into that kind of culture, that kind of of crazy world, the same kind of situations that we face today, here's what he said, writing to the Corinthians, at the very heart of the sexual corruption that existed in the ancient world, he wrote to them, and here's what he said, he said, I want you to flee sexual immorality. You know, there's some temptations that you kind of got to reason through. you got to think your way through it. There's a process involved. But he said when it comes to the desires of the flesh, when it comes to sexual urge to commit immorality, that is sex outside of marriage, when you feel a desire to, to pursue that, there's just one response, and it's get out. Flee sexual immorality like Joseph fled Potiphar's wife run for your life because your life very well may depend on it. And so he taught them this principle. And then he explains it a little bit further in ways that I think are extraordinarily helpful for you and for me. He says to them, all other sins, there's a lot of other kinds of sins besides sexual sins, all other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. If you get into the commentaries on this, It's endless as to exactly what Paul is talking about. And I don't want to get too deep on this. But I just want us to notice here very clearly that that, that Paul says there's something different. There's something unique about sexual sin. And he wants them to recognize that there's something different. And it's why he wants them to flee from it. And I think, again, that we all know that there's something different about it. He's telling them, and we're going to see this in just a moment, that it's not just physical. Physical. But that there are other dimensions to this that if they don't take into account, they're going to wind up hurting themselves, which is what he says here. When you commit this sin, you are sinning against your own body. You're hurting yourself. You're hurting the other person. You're hurting the people that are going to be uh, in your future and in their future. And you, of course, are sinning against God. God. That there's a way that God designed human beings to be, including their sexuality, which cuts right to the very heart of their personhood. And when a person does not function within the design features that their maker gave them, they wind up destroying and hurting and harming themselves. And so he doesn't say that sex, uh, uh, sex is, is the unforgivable sin. He doesn't even say that sex is a worse sin than all the other sins. He just says it's a sin that's sort of in its own category. And it's in its own category in part, again, because of the damage that it does, not to you physically, although there's risks involved with that, but because of the potential that it has to harm you on levels that, again, are hard to even define or describe. And so Paul tells them to be on guard about that. And then a few verses earlier, back up in verse 16, he begins to ask some questions And I think these are important questions for us to consider because a lot of the times people just don't know or people have forgotten or people have suppressed certain things that need to be remembered. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. Now the word unite there is a strong word in the Greek language. In fact, Dr. Birch texted me uh, between services and he said, yeah, this is a Greek word that was used by physicians who spoke and wrote in Greek to describe how a wound, when it heals together, how the edges begin to reattach. It's describing, not just, it's describe, it's describing the, the, what exactly he says, you, the uniting of two into, into one. And Paul goes again all the way back to the beginning and and says, two shall become one flesh. And you're beginning to one something that is not easily unwoned. You're you're uniting in ways that that can't just be a casual encounter. That that there's a a piece of your person, there's a piece of your soul, there's a piece of your heart that is somehow being woven into this relationship And the fact that you go through a series of these kinds of relationships and think that you're getting out of it unscathed is not really true. Because again, that's not the way God designed you. He made you and me and our sexuality in such a way so that this kind of physical union would bring with it a bond that could not easily be torn apart. And when we do that, We're sinning against ourselves. We're harming ourselves. And so he says in verse 19, asking the question again, do you not know? Could it be that you are unaware of this? And he's speaking specifically to Christians now, to those who are united with Christ. He says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? And that, uh, I'm sorry, who is in you, whom you have received from God? So a, a, a lot of people will, will think, going, well, I didn't know that. You know, I just, I just thought, you know, God is in heaven and I'm on the earth and I do my thing and he does his thing. And every now and then I go to the temple or I go to church and there I, I do this vertical thing with God and I get my sins forgiven. Then I go back out and I do whatever I, I want to do until, you know, my sin bucket gets filled up and I can go back to the temple and empty my sin bucket, get the forgiveness and, and go back out and just do whatever I want to do. And, and that's the way that that works. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. It's much, much more intimate and profound than that. You, as a Christian, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God has given himself to you, and he lives in you. And so actually, you're bringing a piece of God with you into every other union that you become involved with. And all of a sudden, you see the Corinthians just sort of lighting up as they think about their practices and then what this reality means of how God is united with humanity. And that therefore, what I do with my body actually affects my relationship with God, which was kind of a crazy thought to them. But that's what he wanted them to understand, and it's what he wants you to understand. That your vessel is holy, and it belongs to the Lord. In fact, that's what he says next. You are not your own. And that may offend some people. I think, I think, in fact, that is one of the most offensive things in all of Scripture, and it's why people have a tendency to push back against Christianity. It's because we want to believe that I am my own person. I'm just an independent actor. I, I somehow just showed up in this world on my own steam, and I, I live my own life, and I answer to no one outside or beyond myself. And God's saying, no, I made you. I gave you life. I sustain you. I hold your very life in the palm of my hand. You belong to me. And so you don't just make up the rules for yourself. And again, you may find that deeply offensive, but what if it's true? What what if you're not just a highly evolved animal, but that there's nothing to you that's really any more significant than a beetle? What if you really are created in the image of God and life is His gift to you and that He wants to live with you and in you and has purpose and destiny for your life? Well, if that's true, then it kind of changes the way I need to think about everything and certainly the way I need to think about my sexuality. And then He adds something that to me is so powerful and so moving. Because not only am I God's by virtue of the fact that he made me and gives me life, but I'm his by virtue of the fact that he's purchased me, bought with a price. What's that talking about? He's reminding the Corinthians and all of us in that 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 we had gone astray. We've deviated from the course. We had broken and severed our relationship with God, but that God sought us out, wooed us back to him through the giving of his son who gave his life, on the cross for my sins, in order that I might be restored to a relationship with God and that he could live in me and with me once more. And so I've been purchased, as Peter says, not with silver and gold, not with cash or credit, but I was purchased by the precious blood of Jesus Christ freely poured out as a ransom for me to bring me back and so I belong to him by virtue of creation I belong to him by virtue of redemption he is my lord and so it matters what I do with my body and how I live my life And so he concludes the section with these words in verse 20 therefore bringing it all to a a single point therefore honor God with your bodies honor God with your bodies that's That's a statement that clarifies so many things. Because if you're on a date with a girl and you're wondering what's the proper thing to do, well, then this kind of answers the question, what's the honorable? How would I honor her as an image bearer of God? How would I honor God as he lives in me and in my body? And how do I honor myself so that I don't sin against my body and do damage to my own being? What's the honorable thing to do? That's the question that we want to ask. What honors God, what honors the other, and what honors me in this situation? So that's the question that we want to ask. And where I see all of this going, and it's just what the whole Bible, again, from Genesis through the New Testament seems to be teaching, is is just this simple principle that sexuality, or sexual purity, rather, prepares the way to intimacy. Sexual purity prepares the way to intimacy. First, it prepares the way to intimacy between me and God, because you know this is true. When I'm behaving in a manner that is sexually immoral, it really puts distance between me and God. You have a hard time praying. You have a hard time feeling close to God when you know that you're living outside of his will for you sexually because again this just runs so deep to who we are and when we're in living outside of God's will when we're living in violation to this where we're treating God's holy temple as something that's common or polluted then it's really hard for us to feel connected to our father in heaven and I would just encourage you to focus as much as you can on maintaining that strong connection between you and your Heavenly Father, between you and your Savior, the Lord Jesus, because that becomes a dynamic power or force in your life that enables you to resist temptation. Do you remember what Joseph said when he was seduced, or she was attempting to seduce him, Potiphar's wife, and he said, how can I do this great evil and sin against God. He wanted something more than he wanted her. And when we desire this intimacy with our Heavenly Father, it empowers us to say no to temptations of the flesh. But it is also the thing that prepares the way for us to have genuine intimacy with our husband or wife in the future or in the present. When we have an exclusive relationship with our spouse, that fuels the romance. In other words, romance in marriage is energized by exclusivity, not by experience. I actually heard someone say one time, well, you know, it's actually good to have a variety of sexual experiences before you get married so that when you get married, you'll know what to do. Believe me, people have been figuring out what to do from the beginning. There's just something that, you know, it's not a problem to figure out what to do. And reality, the reality is that when you meet Mr. or Mrs. Wright, and, and, and you get married to Mr. or Mrs. Wright on your honeymoon, it's not going to be that you're standing there facing one another and each of you saying, you know, I'm just so glad that you've, you've been with 20, 30 other people. And I'm so glad that I've just been with, with dozens of other people because now we're gonna know what to do. No, that, that's not nobody has ever said that. What you say is I'm so grateful. the, the, the ideal would be that that, that that we are only for each other. We've waited for this moment, and even though we might be awkward, we're gonna figure this out together. That's the that's what fuels romance in marriage. Exclusivity, not experience. And I think that we all know that, and so it is that we want to be able on that day to give all of me to all of you for all of life. Now I want to conclude as we try to wind this up by making it as applicable as I can, and just say it this way: Every one of us is writing a story. Every one of us is writing a story of our life. It's got a beginning, a middle, and it'll have an ending. And part of that story is our sexual history. And that's a story that at some point we're going to be sharing with Mr. or Mrs. Wright. And we need to decide what story we want to tell. We need to decide today what story we want to tell when the moment comes for me to disclose my sexual history to the person that I hope to be wedded to for the rest of my life. What story do you want to tell? There are a couple of options of available. There are several, perhaps, options available. One of them would be, you know, I was brought up by parents who taught me these principles, and they were reinforced in the teaching that I heard at, at church, and I read them in Scripture, and I've done the best I can, and, and I can tell you that going into this marriage that, that there's been no one else And because I have developed a character over time, preparing myself, resisting temptation, that I can be confident and you can be confident going forward in this relationship that I'll remain loyal and faithful to you. That's perhaps the best story, right? That's the story, the ideal story that all of us should be shooting for. And as young people, I would strongly encourage you that's the best possible story that you could tell. Or it it could be a story of, you know, I, uh, I made a lot of mistakes and I wasn't taught this and those weren't the principles that were shared with me from the culture that I grew up in and I was involved here and I was involved there or maybe I grew up being taught right but I didn't do right and, and, and yet on September the 13th of 2020, a kind of a memorable year in which there were a lot of bad things that happened but there's one good thing. I made a decision that right there that that was gonna change. I, I, I heard a vision from God's word of what sexuality is actually about and what it means and I saw it as preferable to that which I had been involved with and I made the decision there to, to clean up my act, to seek God's forgiveness and to begin to look forward to this day and to this conversation that you and I are having and it may not be the perfect story but it's still a good story and because I have learned through the discipline and self-control to honor my body and to honor, hopefully, your body going forward, you can trust me moving forward that we're going to have this kind of exclusive relationship. And that's what we want to encourage everyone here to do. No matter what your point or what your, what your story is up to this point, what your background is, what you've been through, what you've done, it's, it's never the case. This is the beautiful, beautiful thing about the gospel it's never the case that everything has to be perfect for it to be okay. There's always the best way, but because of the gospel, because of the forgiveness that Jesus purchased on the cross, there's forgiveness, there's grace to start again. There's, there's renewal and there's always hope. So no matter who you are or what you've done or how far you may have wandered away from God and from his plan for you and for your sexuality and and what what story you want to be able to tell your spouse in uh, in the future, today can be a new beginning for you because the story of the Bible is about how humanity is like a wayward woman who went astray and how Jesus through his loving sacrifice redeemed her back and cleansed her and purified her and made her holy. And so nobody, nobody should leave here feeling like they're a hopeless case, that there's no future for me. In Christ, there is always hope and there is always a future. But it's utterly determined upon our response in faith and in repentance to what he's calling us to do. And I hope that I've been able to set before you a compelling vision for human sexuality that's better than what the world has to offer so that in those immediate moments when you feel urges in this direction or in that direction, you'll be able to stay the course so that when the day comes, you can tell your story and not have to lie when you tell it, because people will lie. But you'll be able to tell a true story, a beautiful story, and a story that lays a foundation for happily ever after. If you're not a Christian this morning, we want to extend to you again the gospel of Jesus Christ as the hope for you. It's for the whole world. It's for your forgiveness. It's for a new beginning. And if you're united to Christ, he takes away every sin, every burden, every wrong you've ever committed. He makes you a child of God, and God lives and dwells with you and makes you one of his holy vessels, a holy temple. And gives you the power and strength that you need to live according to the beautiful life that we're trying to describe and set before you here this morning.